You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the Gangland Wire studio in the home, not going out with this COVID virus thing. And, and I know a lot of you guys are stuck at home, too. So, you know, I'm putting out some extra episodes. I've been interviewing somebody almost every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm running through all the people in the United States. So I had to reach out to my friend up in Canada. <laughs> and there's a lot of, of true crime fans in Canada. I've noticed that, man. There is a bunch of you guys up there. I guess those long, cold winter nights, you got to have something to do. <laughs> exactly. <with. laughs> exactly. So anyhow, folks, this is this is Nate Henley, a a well known true crime author and scriptwriter, and and has done about everything. You know, he's really had a has a whole career in in this business. You know, this is kind of my third career, so uh, th- he's had a whole career in this. Welcome, Nate. Thank you very much, Gary. Appreciate this, and I was just saying uh, that hopefully we'll be able to provide some nice content for the self isolating true crime fans who are sitting at home wanting something to do. I live in Toronto, as Gary said. I was actually born in the U.S. My family is uh, American background. I was born in Connecticut and have lived in Canada all my life, though. I write for various business and trade magazines, and I do true crime books as sort of my fun writing, so to speak. I've written about wrongful murder convictions and gangsters and organized crime, kind of the same thing, illegal drugs, Bonnie and Clyde all sorts of different topics. I just enjoy the genre very much and enjoy talking about it and looking forward to talking to you, Gary. All right, great. Well, now you have, uh, how can folks get a hold of you and see your work? Does, do you have like an author page on Amazon? Plus, I see you've got a uh, own website, a couple of websites. Yeah, the easiest way for people to check out either my books or my background is through my website, which is nate, just simply natehendley.com. N-A-T-E-H-E-N-D-L-E-Y.com. It's got all my books listed, and it's got links to where you can buy them at the usual suspects, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, up here in Canada, Indigo Chapters, and anything you're interested in, you can just click on and, you know, download or get a paper copy in the mail. I also have a crime blog called Crime Story at uh, WordPress, so crimestory.wordpress.com. All right, great. And I see you've uh, put some clips up from some other podcast interviews that you've done. So you're you're familiar with the podcast uh, formula. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's a fun formula. Yeah, it is. It is. I've had a lot of fun. You know, I I had a whole career as a policeman, and and then I was a lawyer for a while. And oh <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I worked intelligence and organized crime in Kansas City for thirteen oh, years wow. out of my twenty five. Wow. And you're you know Kansas City as as I'm sure your your podcast listeners know Kansas City of course is you know pretty big organized crime hotspot. And, yes, uh, it is. You know. Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. I didn't know that, Gary. So anyhow, what we want to talk about, and it's something I've not dealt with, uh, I'm coming up on five years. I think by the time I put this up, folks, I will have just passed five years, in, in, uh, and I'm over a million downloads so far in, in this podcast, this humble little podcast that I started with uh, with another guy five years ago. But, uh, you know, it, it's been a lot of fun, provided me a lot of entertainment, and I hope I provide a lot of entertainment and some insight into how, how the cops work and, and how the the 
organized crime people work. We've mainly dealt with organized crime, and I've been able to get a few good ones on. I had one recently, Nate, you might be interested in this, a guy named Michael D. Leonardo, who was a soldier, made man in the Gambino family. And he gave me a detailed blow-by-blow description of how he was inducted into the mob, that ceremony, by Sammy the Bull Gravano. Oh, wow. Sammy the Bull. Yeah, he was inducted with John Gotti Jr. Now, the reason Sammy the Bull did it, because John Gotti was the was the boss at that time, was because he thought it would look uh, improper for him to induct his own son into his crime family. Ah, very interesting, yeah. And, there, and there, there's always been a lot of controversy about John Gotti Jr. being made anyhow because they, they say he didn't really ever do anything, and, and he didn't last very long either. I've, no, I've noticed he didn't last very long either before he's talking to 60 Minutes and people like that. John Gotti be turning in his grave. Yes, yes, I've, I've, I've heard that. Son did not follow in the father's footsteps, or at least not very closely. He didn't He didn't have the heart. There was few like that. John Gotti, as he said in the wiretap once, he said, I'm Cosa Nostra now, a Cosa Nostra tomorrow, and a Cosa Nostra forever, or something like that. So, <laughs> he was, And this guy was a real deal. Uh, the only reason he went into witness protection and, and then ended up coming on my podcast a few years later is they started taking all of his money while he was in the penitentiary. Oh, and and then they sent him a message said, well, you've been put on the shelf. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. He said, you know, I probably will get back out of here. <laughs> I wasn't getting a life sentence or the death penalty. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what happened. I was talking to an FBI agent friend of mine afterwards and who worked organized crime with us here in Kansas City. And he said, yeah, he said, that's what happened to the modern mafia. He said they, they got no uh, no sense of, of uh, propriety, no sense of... Uh, Tradition, no sense of loyalty to anybody other than to money. And I heard that. Money. Okay, let's uh, let's do this uh, do this thing. And and we talked a little bit about what to, to talk about. And I I've done some stuff on Lucky Luciano, but I have never done that time frame in which he started making his move, starting with his original boss, Joe Massiera. I always stumble over some of these names, but you can help me with that, I'm sure. Uh, but but when he when he first started making his move and and he ended up uh, what I first read about when I one of the first mob books I ever read was talking about the Night of the Sicilian Vespers. Now I find that that there's a lot of controversy about whether that really happened. They really killed a lot of people that night. But the first book I read talked about that and it kind of captured my uh, imagination. Uh, so anyhow, let's uh, let's talk. Uh, and I know you've written extensively about this time. Let's talk about Lucky Luciano and, and him making his first move, and, and then we'll go on into making his second move. A quick little background. Uh, Lucky Luciano, born in Sicily. Like a lot of uh, Sicilians and Italians, his family moves to the United States because of poverty and terrible conditions back home. Uh, he's raised in New York City and, you know, runs pretty wild, a lot of street gangs. He makes friends with some uh, equally delinquent kids who happen to be named Meyer Lansky and Bugs, Bugsy Siegel, Benjamin Siegel, Bugsy being his nickname. Meyer is actually uh, busted. He's one of the first people arrested for violating uh, federal drug laws because he's trying to sell opium. He rises up the ranks. Uh, he's a very clever guy, and he acquires the nickname lucky because he was taken for a ride and survived 
And I don't think for the, the benefit of your listeners, I need to explain what taken for a ride means. <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah, kidnapped by three guys, tortured, beaten up, pretty much left for dead, and staggered too. He survived, although he had injuries, his one eye drooped for the rest of his life. But this was so astonishing, he was called Lucky. He starts working for Giuseppe, Joe the Boss, Mazzari, and very quickly decides he doesn't really like Joe very much because Joe is what they called a mustache teat. And that was a very sort of derogatory nickname that the young sort of mafia, mafiosa, would apply to the old guard. These were guys who were very clannish. They only wanted to do business with fellow Sicilians. And this rankled with people like Lucky Luciano because he had friends who were Jewish. He was happy to do business with Jewish or Irish gangsters. He didn't care. To him, it was just a way to make money. And he regarded the, you know, these mustache peats as kind of fuddy-duddies, basically. And they're obsessed with honor, more so than running a business. You know, they'd always be fuming about some guy who looked at him wrong and, oh, you got to kill this guy. So there's some plotting going on. Lucky takes Joe the Boss out for a nice little restaurant meal and uh, on Coney Island, 1931, April 1931. And while, you know, they're having this lovely meal and they play little cards. And at one point, Lucky says, I got to use the washroom. And he goes in the washroom and lo and behold, these four gunmen rush in and shoot Joe the Boss full of bullets. And uh, Lucky's asked about it. Oh, I don't know. I was in the washroom at the time. I didn't see anything. Kind of a bit of the reversal of that famous scene in The Godfather. Al Pacino finds a, you know, takes a gun out of the bathroom and shoots the gangster boss and the police chief. Sort of a reversal of that. So Lucky Luciano has eliminated um, Joe, the boss, Mazzari. Sorry, Joe, the boss. He's now faced the new sort of new head guy in town is a guy named Salvatore Maranzano. And Maranzano was also from Sicily, and he was initially sent to America by a Sicilian gangster by the name of Don Ferro, with the explicit instruction to sort of organize the American, uh, Italian-American underworld into sort of a formal structure. And so Salvatore comes to the United States with this plan. His boss promptly gets thrown in jail by Mussolini's fascist government. So Maranzano thinks, okay, well, you know, I'll just take the boss's plan and do it myself. Maranzano holds a big meeting with Lucky Luciano and all these other Italian-American gangsters and basically lays out the structure for what we know as the mafia, the American mafia. He organizes everybody into families. There's five families. And he outlines a hierarchical structure. You know, you've got the boss, you've got underboss. You've got the capo. Capo is like a lieutenant, basically, in charge of 10 uh, soldiers. And underneath the soldiers, you have associates. And an associate can be anybody. You can be Jewish, African-American, Irish, whatever. But you can't become a formal member of the mafia. That's reserved only for people who are like, quote unquote, pure-blooded uh, Italians or Sicilians. Maranzano outlines various strictures, like if you talk about this organization, which he refers to as Casa Nostra, that means death. You're not supposed to sleep with the wife of a fellow member. 
you know, if you're arrested, you're supposed to just say, oh, I don't know anything. Total silence. So he outlines these various ideas. And most of the people gathered, they like this because, you know, organization is good, more power, more money. There's a problem, though, is that Maranzano is not the easiest guy in the world to get along with. And he wants to be the boss of bosses, meaning that we've got this wonderful five family structure, which covers New York City and eventually will expand to cover, you know, Chicago and basically the rest of the U.S., but Maranzano says, I want to be in charge of everything. I want to be basically dictator. And the guys, again, underneath him, Luciano, they don't really like this because the whole point was that this would be, this would give them a structure, but they didn't want to have like one guy constantly yelling at them, telling them what to do. And it doesn't help that Maranzano is completely paranoid and not a very sort of stable personality. And at one point, Luciano gets that Maranzano is actually putting together a death list. And according to legend, um, he has the names of just about every, every major you know, mafia figure on it, including Luciano. And Maranzano, again, according to legend, because some of these things are a little difficult to nail down because the mafia aren't big on leaving minutes to their meetings. Maranzano apparently hires mad uh, Mad Dog Cole, who was a gunman who had worked for Dutch Schultz, was a Jewish gangster. And Cole was basically fired by Schultz because he was too crazy, even for Dutch Schultz, who was mm. mentally unstable as it was. So that shows you, like, and he acquires the nickname Mad Dog because he tries to kill one of Schultz's um, associates by spraying a bunch of kids with bullets. They happen to be in the way. So, well, we'll just shoot them all. So this is the guy he Maranzano picks to eliminate his enemies. So anyway, Luciano gets word of this. So Luciano, for the second time in one year, arranges a rub out of another of a major boss. He has a bunch of guys burst into Maranzano's headquarters. This is this is September 1931, dressed as U.S. Treasury agents. That's how they get in flashing fake badges. And they shoot and stab Maranzano, leave him for dead. Luciano takes charge very quickly, and he reassures all the sort of people in the mafia families that Maranzano was a nutter. He was out to kill you all. I took care of a problem. And he also does something very clever, is that he doesn't try to become the boss of bosses. What Luciano does is he envisions this organized mafia uh, five family structure being sort of controlled, not by one guy at the top, but by like a commission that basically would be like a board of directors to use sort of a corporate metaphor. This would have representation from all the major, you know, mafia families, and they would discuss issues. They wouldn't just shoot each other, you know, shoot each other in the head. They would get together discuss issues about territories or rackets or a politician who needed to be bribed or whatnot. So Luciano sets this up. Technically, he's, I don't know, he's sort of the de facto boss of bosses. People treat him like that just because he's smart and he knows what he's doing. But he never tries to enforce sort of, he never tries to act like a dictator. He's smart enough to know that he shouldn't 
repeat Maranzano's mistakes. So Luciano is really, if Salvatore Maranzano set up an organized American mafia, Luciano really took the concept and ran with it because Maranzano didn't really enjoy the fruits of his labor for very long because he was killed within a very short time of setting up this organized mafia. So Luciano takes this and maintains this and just enhances the structure of these sort of, you know, the five families and the commission and becomes this incredibly powerful boss. And his strategy, he's, he doesn't object to violence. Like he's not a shrinking, you know, wallflower by any means, but he sees violence as a means to an end, like a way to solve a business dispute. He doesn't, he doesn't order hits just because he doesn't like the way a guy looked at him or because a guy spoke fresh about him or something. He doesn't dwell on these obsessive points of honor that the mustache Pete's did, you know, that he's happy to use negotiation, political persuasion, and just outright bribery. And, you know, a little creative thuggery mixed in, mixed in there too, rather than just sort of, you know, trying to shove guns in everyone's face and, you know, boss them around. And this works quite well for some time. Let's go back just a little bit. What what I find really interesting is the people around Lucky Luciano at this point in time and how long they stayed with it. I mean, you go back and they stayed all the way up till the 50s, 60s, and, and the 70s. Even oh, yeah. Some of them. You had uh, this Joe Adnoise uh, came over with Lucky and warned him warned him off uh, uh, about uh, – uh, Masseria was wanting to kill him, and and then you got you know Albert Anastasia and Vito Genovese and Bugsy Siegel and uh, this uh, Ciro uh, Terranova and, and uh, Meyer Lansky was part of that. I think Meyer Lansky was part of the little crew of, of Jewish guys that that killed uh, Maranzano, I believe, acted like their treasury agents. And so uh, let's, let's talk a little bit with folks about the people that were involved with I think he, uh, Frank Costello was involved at that point in time and those guys all lasted all the way through up in the 50s and 60s and 70s through the war and everything it's just kind of amazing even Lucky left and the whole structure that he set up lasted well Lucky was a good leader in that you know he did two things that were very smart and that he was smart enough to recruit good people around him he wasn't one of these guys who was jealous of his subordinates. So as you mentioned, like he had this whole crew around him of very talented gangsters, you know, uh, and he didn't just focus on Italian-American mafia, that one of his closest friends and sometime business partner was Meyer Lansky, who was Jewish, who was not part of this organized mafia structure. He had Albert Anastasia, who was just like, you know, the creme de la creme of hitmen, that he was a rather repugnant individual, but he's the type of guy you definitely want on your side. And he had this whole crew of very, very sort of, you know, talented, smart gangsters. And for the most part, well, Al Albert Anastasia was, you know, shot dead in a, a barber shop. But for the most part, these guys lasted. A lot of Lucky Luciano's associates lasted for quite a long time because they followed his second leadership principle, which was that he wasn't flashy. He wasn't showy. He wasn't a publicity hog like Al Capone. Al Capone would talk to any reporter. He would actually have press conferences. He would go to City Hall in Chicago to basically show, throw his weight around. 
that attracted a huge amount of attention from the police and fed the federal government. Lucky very much stuck to the shadows. When he was interviewed, he'd say, oh, yeah, I'm rich, but I made that from like, you know, gambling and, and bookkeeping. You know, he would always keep a low profile. He actually dressed fairly conservatively, he did not dress like a flashy Hollywood gangster in a purple suit or something. He liked the good life. Like he, he stayed in opulent surroundings, but he did not show off his wealth. He did not drive around town in a gold-plated Rolls Royce or something. That it was all sort of like trying to keep to the shadows. And that's generally the longest-lasting mafia bosses. That's how they behave. They sort of kept to the background, don't attract much press, you know, keep a low profile. That's really sort of a good good way for longevity in these kind of circles and he was as a game i just stress that you know lucky was just a smart canny kind of guy he didn't tend to lose his temper and freak out and get obsessive about some slight or some stupid incident that you know really annoyed him or something and he probably would have lasted a lot longer um although he did attract the attention of prosecutor thomas Let's go back and speculate a little bit about this. When Maranzano was killed that night, uh, I, I told I read in a book once, and they called it the Night of Sicilian Vespers. And supposedly they killed a whole lot of people that night. They they set up a bunch of these old mustache peats that were they were afraid would come back and take revenge on them for Maranzano's death. And you know, I looked that up, and originally the night of Sicilian Vespers happened back in 1282. Now, did you know that in yeah, Sicily? I, did. <laughs> I just looked that up myself. And uh, there's a lot of French people in in Sicily, and there was a Frenchman that was messing, trying to mess around with another Sicilian man's wife, and the Sicilian man came out with a knife and killed him. And, and the crowds got together and they started killing French people that were imported down to Sicily for some reason. I'm not sure why at the time, but they started killing them like crazy. They called that the Night of Sicilian Vespers. But I, I, what I found out about this, whether this is true or rumor or not, I don't think will ever be known because the police in New York City especially did not keep very good records on this kind of thing back then. Yeah. They may have had some individuals' murders and said, yeah, there was a lot of murders, and they were all Italian, but they just said, oh, well, you know, that's how they are. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You, you hit the nail on the head, uh, nail on the head Gary, that the, the night of the Sicilian Vespers, it's kind of one of these things that's got a kernel of truth and a whole lot of myth-making. That, you know, Maranzano was killed in September 1931, and apparently some of his lieutenants were also killed. So there were, you know, there was definitely some murder going on. It has, however, taken on this grandiose and maybe pop culture Hollywood kind of image of like, you know, 100 people killed in various horrible ways across the country. That really isn't borne out by statistics. When you asked about this topic, I looked up uh, Selwyn Robb, who's one of my favorite organized crime authors. He wrote a book, The Five Families. He's a good one. Very good one. I looked up what he said, and he cites 1976. A historian actually did a study where he looked up all the records he could find of various you know, hits in New York and all this. And he didn't find that many connected with the Maranzano murder in September 1931. And the ones he did find, as you say, Gary, it was a little hard to, you know, 
an Italian American gangster would be found dead. Was he part of the Maranzano gang or just some freelancer or was he really part of the mafia or just some thug? A lot of it is very murky. I think it's safe to say there were some killings, but it was very exaggerated. Like, you know, the, the Hollywood version's more interesting. Yeah. You know, the bloodbath with dozens of people machine gunned on the street. Ah, that didn't happen. That really wasn't Luciano's style, that he was perfectly happy to have Joe the Boss and then Maranzano murdered and maybe a couple of their lieutenants killed too. But he wasn't like a sadist who just liked white people out. So that really wasn't his style. He'd rather win them over, have them work with. And, and his whole life uh, indicated that, you know, every, I've kind of followed along his life. He he would have meetings. He was big on having meetings. He had the meeting in uh, Sicily in 1946, right after right after the war. Then he had a bunch of them come down to Cuba and have a meeting and, and iron things out. He was even the guy that organized the first commission for the Sicilian mafias, according to what I read. So he he was big into that. Now, how this took on this, uh, this is probably where I read this. Uh, Joe Valachi, of course, testified in 1963. And, and I don't think he testified about this. They probably didn't even ask him about something that old. But when Peter Moss wrote the book, the Valachi Papers, which that, was, that book, it just hit huge. That book was huge. Uh, and that guy was a, a really good writer and, and uh, well-respected, but he, he he reported that Valachi says, claims there was a— that night of Maranzano's murder, I have to quote here, was part of an intricate, painstakingly executed mass extermination engineered by Chuck, Charles Lucky Luciano, uh, and he claims that there was 40 Cosa Nostra leaders uh, allied with Maranzano slain all across the country, so— that you know that kind of guy with that reputation using Bellacci as his source, you know it's hard to it's hard to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky Luciano, he he co-authored that book, The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano, and he he claims it didn't happen. And and so you know I have to agree with you that uh, Lucky Luciano was not that kind of guy. And and it just you know it would have it would have hit the newspapers all over the country even the even the yes. dumbest cop and the dumbest agent and the dumbest and the reporter dumbest. would have started putting that together and and it would right. be pretty well reported at the time you know you know anything that when it's reported at the time the closer to the incident that you can find some source that talks about it but nobody talked about it back then did they right there's a great quote. And it actually might have been from Lucky Luciano himself, in which he talked about Joe Valachi. And he said uh, the testimony he gave, he said it was kind of like um, somebody from New Guinea uh, who all of a sudden was converted to the Catholic Church, Catholicism, <laughs> giving an in-depth explanation of the workings of the Vatican. <laughs> That's a, I've never heard that. That's a good one. <laughs> and, and that might have been lucky who said that, because from what I understand, uh, you know, Joe Valachi was, he actually, you know, he was a mafia. He was in the mafiosa. But they, from what I understand, the FBI fed him a lot of information that they wanted revealed. Yeah, to the world. yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. He didn't really know a lot of like you know these intricate leadership battles and stuff like yeah. he didn't know anything about that. 
he was not in the know on anything like that. No, R- rumor, no. rumor at best. Uh, but th- but he offered it just like it, as sworn testimony and just like he was standing there, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, quite illuminating reading when I read <laughs> you know, the Halachi papers. Okay, well, we know we're at thirty minutes. I think I'll just uh, I want to get you. To, you seem like you've got plenty of time. I'll just get you to come back over sure. the next couple of three weeks. There's other things I want to talk about. Absolutely. Anyhow, and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I really like your idea on this. Uh, on the uh, mafia was not as much fun or as successful. <laughs> See, when I was working these guys, guys, I used to think, well, you know that. They're supposed to be big bumpsters, but yet they live at home. They they may have a two or three year old car, but they just you know, and they may have cash in their pocket, but it just doesn't seem like they really have anything. Ah, interesting point. And they weren't the kind of people that were invested in the stock market. And they weren't the kind of people that that had a bunch of rental property out there. Uh, for mm-hmm. the most part. Now the boss, he had rental property, and he he was invested in the stock market. Our, our boss Nick Savella was, and his brother. Carl, they were pretty sharp, and and they did those kinds of things. But most of the others, you know, they were just kind of. One had a record store, but he sold boosted records. He made a pretty good money off of that. Hmm. But mainly, they didn't. Uh, you know, they didn't really have that much. They had the family home. They didn't even have a big new home. Uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the uh, more fun, amusing things in the book. Um, uh, Donnie Brasco, um, yeah. and from Joseph Bastone, Bastoni, yeah. I stumble over these names. In his testimony, he was talking about how he was, the biggest thing that surprised him was how boring a lot of this was. Really? Oh, God. Because he'd, you know, he'd hang out with these mafia guys, basically yeah. in the back of this crappy restaurant or something. They'd play <laughs> cards all day. Yeah. And then somebody would say, oh, hey, I got a great idea for some scam we can do yeah. or some racket. And they'd all run out do something and then they go back and play cards and he's like how is this like really more entertaining to have an office job like and he talked and he mentioned exactly what you just said gary that a lot of these lower level guys were not living the high life like yeah they had they had they had a lot of like money in their wallet to have like a big dinner and then they broke the next day. It was one score to the next. If they got a score, then they were they were fat and happy for a while, and then they had to start scuffling for another score. There's no money put away at all, and it, it, ain't, it ain't that romantic. I know that, but that's interesting. That's fascinating. Okay. okay thank you. Thank you. Bye. Talk to you, Gary. You take care. Bye. Well, folks, that was Nate Henley, a true crime writer, mob writer from up in Toronto, Canada, from his uh, COVID-19 Fortress of Solitude. I'm in mine, COVID-19, COVID-18, whatever it is, 19, Fortress of Solitude. So there's another podcast for you, another interesting look at uh, Lucky Luciano and the Night of the Sicilian Vespers, which I'd always heard about, and I always wanted to get that clear in my mind. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD connected to your service time, call the local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area. There's a national hotline out there, 1-800-273-8255. Be sure and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to the website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Don't forget, after this is all over, hit me up on the Venmo app, Jinx Law. Buy me a cup of coffee or shot in a beer. i got my books and movies out there. My two movies, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, are on 
Amazon, you can rent them for $1.99. Just go to the other purchase options to get the SD version. My book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. I got the Kansas City Mob Tour app, and that's all I really got to sell. Good night, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. <laughs>